Mr. Speaker. It is an enormous pleasure to introduce Nikat Dad. In some ways, she doesn't need any introduction since she's already quite well known to our community and to many of you individually. Uh, but by agreement between us, I'm going to tell you a little bit of the stuff that maybe she wouldn't say herself. Um, she's a formidable activist who, um, as you know, founded the Digital Rights Foundation in Lahore, Pakistan. She does uh, uh, work um, on behalf of many people being harassed online. Unfortunately, that's also on behalf of herself um, and also fights uh, bravely and tirelessly for uh, digital rights, including privacy. Um, I'd like to tell you just, just a minute or two about how she got into this. Um, she comes from a small village in Punjab, whose name is Ratamatta. Ratamatta. I, uh, I'm, we're still working on the pronunciation, as you can tell. Um, her parents had no formal education, um, and that is a a um, cultural environment in which you would not expect a woman to uh, go to college, uh, to go to law school, to go on to found an organization, to do pioneering work in human rights, or even to have red, green, and other <laughs> In other words, she is uh, blazing trails of all kinds. Um, uh, encouraged uh, very strongly by both of her parents, including her dad, who uh, Nigat has told me used to um, make a point of being in the middle of the village outside speaking on his mobile to Nigat when she was traveling somewhere beginning her career as a digital rights uh, campaigner so that other people in the village would understand what it was uh, that his daughter was doing, and also that he was tremendously proud of her. So um, I, I would like to just uh, kind of, unfortunately, they are no longer with us in, in body, but I would like to just welcome them in spirit, even as we welcome uh, Nigat, who I'm very grateful to say is my friend and colleague. Um, thank you so much. This is a very kind introduction. I'm sure they must be very proud up there and smiling <laughs> that I'm, I'm talking in Harvard today at Berkman Center. Um, that, I, that was one of their dreams to see their children in the, one of the prestigious universities in the world. And I, I'm sure they never thought that I could ever make, make it to Harvard. <laughs> uh, but uh, thank you so much uh, for having me here um, and inviting me to talk about the issue of online harassment, which is uh, basically a global issue. Uh, we at the Digital Rights Foundation, uh, among other things, uh, have been trying to address online violence against women, especially from a very difficult context of Pakistan, where religion plays a very important role in every aspect of our lives. Um, and where the society is uh, have very deep-rooted patriarchal norms. Um, and uh, when I started working on online harassment uh, against women and vulnerable communities in Pakistan, I found that it's not just specific to Pakistan, but it's a global issue. However, 
there are few things that make it more uh, more complex uh, than the rest of the jurisdictions uh, across the world. Um, and um, when we started, when I started looking into it, uh, I felt that lots of women, when they face harassment online, first of all, it's so hard for women to get online. It's just, you know, like access to technology is just a man thing. And uh, women are mostly, especially in the conservative parts of Pakistan, are not allowed to access social media uh, or online um, uh, spaces just because that uh, it's not something that is appropriate for them. Uh, according to the according to the, what society thinks, uh, or or sometimes you know the conservative families, uh, but then uh, when women try to access uh, these online spaces and they face harassment, they just cannot talk about it because most of the time in in conservative parts or in far flung areas they. Are, their families don't know about this, that they are online or they are using mobile phones. It's sometimes they are concealing that they are using mobile phones. And, uh, and that's why I make it so hard for them to talk about the harassment or violence that they face, whether be it stalking, her, uh, uh, blackmailing, rape threats, death threats. Uh, and, uh, uh, but in recent years, uh, I, I found that lots of women and vulnerable communities found this found found this courage to talk about the issue. Uh, that's where the government of Pakistan actually uh, introduced this legislation called Prevention of Electronic Crimes Act, 2016, which is a very draconian act. To be very honest, it's a very bad law. Uh, however, as as uh, it is happening across, especially in global south, that whenever countries like Pakistan makes these kind of pro problematic legislation, they make it in the name of protecting women. So we need to protect women and uh, women and daughters and sisters uh, because of the abuse that they are facing uh, in the public space or in the online space. And that's where they, they made this law. Although the law is very, very problematic, it is giving massive powers to different authorities in Pakistan to surveil people, to monitor them, to, uh, um, to control the narrative online in the name of uh, banning unlawful content, uh, in the name of banning um, uh, immoral and obscene content. I mean, these are the words that they have used. Uh, but the main narrative is that we need to protect women uh, in Pakistan. So they made this legislation. Section 20 of this law basically uh, uh, talks about the offenses against dignity of a natural person, which is a criminal defamation. Pro very, very problematic language. Section 24 talks about cyber stalking, very ambiguous language. But still they these are the provisions which sort of give some legal remedy to the people who face harassment online um online harassment in pakistan can turn deadly yeah so it's like it, that, that's where i was saying that uh, the patriarchal norms are so deep rooted uh, for instance uh, i'll go to this case study where this woman her name is kandil balosh and see she was a, a first social media celebrity in Pakistan in terms of reclaiming online space and reclaiming her sexuality very openly. And this is very rare when it comes to a Muslim society. Uh, and she was, uh, she was being killed in the name of honor. Uh, and how it happened, she was actually uh, 
reclaiming her right to anonymity, which is so rare in Pakistan. People even don't understand what anonymity is. She was using her pseudonym online, got so much uh, um, uh, popularity, uh, and people were like uh, going to her page. Some of the men were like watching her videos and then abusing her, which is so ironic. Uh, and uh, and she has been, she had been facing death threats and rape threats, and somehow one of the journalists uh, actually found her real identity and got access to her national ID card, and they made it public online. And when they made it public, it went viral. It was picked up by the mainstream media. They did shows on her and then they basically shamed her so much that this woman belongs to this small village, belongs to this uh, a very respectable tribal area called Baloch. She is she, she is basically defaming this tribe tribe. Uh, and the things that she is doing is not something that a respectable woman should do online. Um, and this led to her murder because uh, her family uh, felt that she is actually risking the honor of the tribe. And when she was visiting her family, her brother killed her in the name of honor. The case is still going on, didn't go anywhere. Um, but that that's basically the reality where if woman wants to uh if they want to uh, reclaim online spaces the way they want to they are always being threatened um after kandil murder uh their group of feminists and collectives and young feminists who started condemning her murder and they faced a lot of threats from different uh um from different uh, uh people online who were very upset that why these women are condemning her murder because this woman doesn't even deserve that she was a shame to the society so these young feminists who are who are resisting the narrative of of her being shamed they also deserve rape threats and they are also bad women so a lot of harassment was uh, happened during that time after her murder and and i used to get a lot of um, uh, complaints about cyber harassment as an individual and working at a digital rights foundation but but during that time it increased so much that i also started burning out and we thought there should be something with where you know people can actually reach out to us and there should be you know some mechanism around where we can actually you know have data about these complaints and stuff and in december 2016 we started a cyber harassment helpline in Pakistan. We didn't have money. We just had a small grant, uh, uh, which was $5,000. And we thought that we really need to do something. Uh, otherwise, we will just, we will burn out. We won't be able to respond to people. And the situation is getting worse. And we we should see that how we can respond to, uh, to the complaints that we are getting. Um, so we started the helpline. Um, and in the meantime, I also won the Dutch Humorized Tulip Award, which came with a good money, which was around 100,000 euros. So we have, uh, we, ha we, we can sustain the helpline for another year. Uh, and I thought that we will be getting complaints, uh, cyber harassment complaints, maybe, you know, 10 or 15 uh, once, uh, once a week. But uh, when we started the helpline, it was uh, 15 to 20 calls per day. And the helpline is is not 24/7. It's Monday to Friday from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Uh, we also thought that we will be getting complaints from women mostly because that's what I have been getting 
for the last for, for uh, before starting the helpline but um when we see the figures it's uh uh, 250, 253 calls were by a woman and 151 calls by men. And this is, uh, when it comes to our society, this is kind of really a uh, uh, rare uh, uh, thing where men also reach out for these services uh, because um, like it, it, in patriarchal society, it's like very hard where women can, where men talk about the violence that they face. Uh, and it and it's also you know they feel shame that you know they are facing harassment and they 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 are talking about it so they cannot talk about this in public and i think one of the aspect of uh, getting so many complaints from from men was that the hel uh, harassment helpline is anonymous so so i think this also uh, makes it for easy uh, makes it easy for the people to just you know call the helpline and get support um and among this 151 uh, male callers, there they were men who actually got support from them, but also calling on the behalf of the woman in their families uh, and uh, on the behalf of their uh, female friends who were hesitant to reach out to, to the helpline. So this uh, this was also a good trend to see that you know there are ma male members in the family and around women who are also uh, providing this support supporting mechanism to them. Uh, so at the helpline, we basically provide digital security support. I think this is really uh, a, a, a good thing at the helpline because I have I'm, I myself is a digital security trainer, have been reaching out to people and giving these trainings where in one training we just cover around maybe 12, 15, 20 people. But at the helpline, it's like people are reaching out to us and it's like general awareness raising about the digital security and safety. We also provide legal support, so uh, we do not uh, give them legal aid in terms of like fighting their cases in the courts or something, but just to tell them that what the law says, what kind of legal remedies they have, uh, how the law enforcement, uh, which is Federal Investigation Agency Cybercrime Wing works, uh, and, pro and letting them know about the entire process of reporting and then the trial and stuff. And then psychological counseling. Uh, we have seen it's um, most of the time when we get complaints uh, a woman or men or whosoever they they face a lot of emotional trauma and this is where you know most most of the time uh, organizations or even helplines in Pakistan they hardly address this issue or actually see it as an issue so this is also uh, we have a counselor who also provides this counseling at the helpline and then um, there are referral mechanisms, so existing helplines in Pakistan, we are reaching out to them. So uh, sometimes there are complaints around domestic violence that we receive, so we refer it to the helpline which deals with the domestic violence and the other helplines like uh, uh, emotional trauma helpline and uh, um, yeah, and, and, and the cybercrime wing helpline as well. So coordination with law enforcement agencies and coordination with social media companies. Uh, so these are both of the things that I think uh, after the, we actually released the report, it's been five months. We just released the report of uh, our five months uh, progress. Um, and I'll show you the figures in the next slide. But things that we identified were also very useful for the law enforcement agency. We reached out to them. They, the report made it to the mainstream media and uh, people, lots of people at the mainstream media and online platforms, basically, they, they actually talked about it. And law enforcement reached out to us saying 
that uh, the things that you have identified is very helpful and we'll be seeing that how we can incorporate and fill those gaps. Uh, and these are the nature of complaints that we have received. Uh, 101 uh, complaints were of fake profiles on Facebook. Um, and then there are other forms of uh, harassment that we uh, sort of uh, you mentioned here in which hacking, unsolicited, uh, uh, blackmailing, info seeking, which is like general information where people just call and get in, uh, general information, uh, and federal investigation related complaints, uh, non-consensual use of images, online stalking, gender-based uh, bullying, um, doxing, threats, financial fraud, stalking, all of these complaints that we have received. So we sort of made a table uh, and we found that uh, 196 complaints were related to Facebook. Uh, and it's because that uh, lots of people on uh, who are using internet in Pakistan are mostly using Facebook. Uh, yeah. Can I just ask what the number two is? It's, it's multiple, uh, yeah, so it's like multiple, uh, from multiple platforms. Uh, yeah, so the key challenges that we identified um, uh, in our report also and during the four, uh, five months of work at the helpline, uh, the law enforcement agency is basically under-resourced. Uh, there are 29 districts in Punjab. I'm just talking about one province, although we have four provinces. And there are just nine info, uh, investigation officers. Uh, and it's like millions of population that they are dealing with right now. Uh, at the cybercrime wing for the last one year, there is no person who is leading, who can lead the, uh, who can lead the cybercrime wing at the law enforcement agency. It's, which shows it's the least priority uh, at the law enforcement agency right now. Um, there, is, there are no um, uh, standard operating procedures around privacy and data confidentiality for evidence submitted. And this is one of the main reason that we found people, especially women, are hesitant to reach out to law enforcement uh, because they have no assurance how their data will be treated, uh, how they will keep it safe, what are the privacy mechanisms around. Um, and cybercrime wing offices are only in the uh, main urban cities, uh, which are, uh, and then people who are living in rural areas or uh, least developed areas, they just cannot reach out to these offices because they have to appear in, in person and then they lodge the complaint. Uh, there's a lot of victim blaming going on at the cybercrime wing and which also discourage women to reach out to them and other vulnerable communities. Uh, lack of awareness among the law, even uh, among government and judges, uh, sorry, and inordinate de delays. So it's like uh, uh, the, the legislation which was enacted last year in the name of protecting women uh, hardly protects any woman since then uh, and there is no understanding and awareness about the law how it will be used judges are not really prepared they did even most most of the time government officials uh, people at the law enforcement uh, lawyers judges they really don't understand how uh, the internet basically works um, and that's why there are so many delays in dealing with these cases. So these are the key challenges that we are facing. We have informed the law enforcement. We have reached out to the um, uh, Ministry of Information Technology. Uh, and they said, uh, when we mentioned about the lack of uh, data confidentiality, uh, they said, oh, we are, uh, we are going to work on data protection law in Pakistan. We don't have any at the moment. And 
we we said all right that's good that's where we reached out to the cyber law clinic here and we are actually right now working at the policy brief for the government and for the uh, policy makers in Pakistan who are really, really interested to have that brief with them and then they can actually advocate around that. So I think this is a very good moment at the moment where the cyber harassment helpline, it's a very local solution to be very honest, might not work for everyone who is actually dealing or addressing this issue in different countries. But I think it's it was very important for us to uh, sort of, uh, you know, deal this issue uh, at the very local level because I feel that online harassment, it's a global issue, but we need local solutions to address that. And Cyber Harassment Helpline was one of the solution. And I felt that this uh, experiment is so far very, it's, it's very successful for us. Uh, so many complaints, uh, people are reaching out, they are speaking up, men are reaching out, which is so rare in Pakistani society. And then w lots of gaps that we are identifying is actually opening up, uh, you know, uh, uh, lots of solutions also. And, you know, uh, and then reaching out to people like Cyber Law Clinic here or Bartman Center. And it's, I'm, I'm so, like, I'm, I'm glad and very on, I'm honored that I had this access to the Bartman Center uh, and I could reach out to people. But I think that's, that the, the moment is so great right now where we can actually push for uh, good legislations in Pakistan and, you know, address the issues at the law enforcement agencies. Thank you. Maybe I'll uh, start with, uh, with a small question uh, based on this fantastic talk and the last slide in which you give uh, your the DRF's Twitter and email, mm -hmm. and then it says contact us, but the cyber helpline is a phone number. Yes. Why is that? Why don't you want people to email or tweet you can you explain yeah so uh, I think that I said that this is a very local solution and uh, in Pakistani context uh, toll free helplines have been uh, working very uh, like they, they they are being very effective there is not much so using Facebook is one thing but using emails is something that people really don't know and they don't care about and then they would like to they would like to not to talk to anyone instead of writing an email and ask for help and and it's 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 also a culture where people can just dial a number and can talk to someone you know uh, of, to a human voice and ask for a solution so that's why i said that helpline i thought it's it's a it's a very local solution but it's working well for us yeah so you really done what you know people will feel most comfortable yes. with in order to implement this thing. And then just to follow up, um, what sort of data are you collecting from the people who call? And is there anything that you don't collect from them? So it's very voluntary. We don't ask their name. We don't ask the place. We don't ask any information uh, because we call ourselves anonymous helpline. Uh, and if it's it's voluntary, if they want to tell us that I'm, I'm this and I belong to this community or I'm calling from this city or this place, then we sort of note it down. But we are not sure whether it's true. Yeah. And, and I think that's and I think it's also a word of mouth where, you know, people who have already reached out to us, they tell other people that it's anonymous. Nobody's going to judge you and you can call and get help. And that's why we, we receive lots of complaints by man. you 
Have you been able to reach all parts of the country, including the parts that the Taliban runs the local governments? Uh, so, uh, I'm not sure if we still have those parts where Taliban's are there. <laughs> Maybe they are there. But yes, we actually reached out to those parts of the country through local journalists. So they actually, you know, uh, wrote about the helpline in the in their own regional languages in the local papers. Uh, we appeared in different t TV shows as well because that was a big deal in Pakistan having a helpline addressing online harassment issue. So I think that was another channel of, you know, uh, promoting the work that we are doing and asking people to reach out to us. And that's why we are getting calls from all over Pakistan, a very conservative part of Balochistan and Khyber Pakhtunkhwa and then, you know, cities like Karachi, Lahore and Islamabad. So uh, it's, 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 so the call that I was mentioning to you the other day, it was from Balochistan. And Balochistan is a very tribal sort of area and very it's a conflict zone, conservative. Uh, people don't reach out for help. We got a call from a man who was actually seeking help for her sister. And that was a big deal for us because he said that I don't want the men in my family to kill my sister. And she is facing blackmailing from a man who has her nudes. Uh, and, and he said that I want to save her. So you, I need your advice how I'm, how, how I'm going to do this, how I, I should reach out to law enforcement, how I'm going to report this. And he was actually saving her sister. And his so sister had, didn't have this courage to, reach, to actually call us. Uh, or you know, talk to talk to anyone. So, uh, and I found it really great that you know a brother was actually supporting, whereas we had this Kandil's case where the brother murdered her her sister. So we so these these are the cases that are really of you know urgent nature and sensitive. Uh, we reached out to uh, Facebook if the if the pictures are on Facebook or something, and then Facebook sort of you know deal with it very quickly. Uh, but uh, we also have, you know, uh, at the region, uh, regional offices of Cybercrime Wing, uh, we have people who really support us and they keep the, you know, things anonymous. So in, in cases where they feel that there is a risk of honor killing or, you know, if somebody is, you know, can be killed by her family or something like that. So they, they treat that issue very, uh, you know, sensitively. Yeah. I have two questions. Um, how do people find you? And the other question is, are there any risks to you uh, and your organization from doing this kind of activity and providing this kind of support? Uh, so how people find us is we do a lot of, uh, you know, uh, promotion of the helpline. Uh, I won't call it a promotion, but advocacy around the helpline. So, you know, especially reaching out to different referral uh, systems, I said that we are working with existing helplines. So what happens that if there is a case of online harassment or online violence, uh, these helplines tell them that you should call to the uh, cyber harassment helpline. This is the number that these are the services that they provide. Uh, time to time we do we come on radio shows uh, and talk about the helpline um, sometimes uh, TV shows invite us so it's like a global it's, it's like a, you know national TV channels where we get some airtime and you know we talk about so that's how we are reaching out to the people we also do a lot of promotion on Facebook and that's where we get a lot of you know um, uh, uh, people get a lot of detail about us and then they call us um, yes we have risks now uh, because uh, we just, it happened just one time, but we got a call from this person who said, uh, I am reporting to you a blasphemy content, uh, and blasphemy is a 
is a is a very sensitive issue in Pakistan. We have a blasphemy law, and where if you can, if you if somebody says anything against Prophet or or uh, or Islam um, or Holy Book, uh, he or she can be punished under that law, and the and the punishment is death penalty, uh, not less than that. So. This person called us and he said that I found blasphemy content on Facebook. So would you please remove that? And we said, no, we don't do this. Uh, uh, you can report it to Pakistan Telecommunication Authority. He said he's, he was very upset at, at us and he was like, what kind of harassment helpline you have? I'm being I'm being, uh, you know, offended by this blasphemy content. And what kind of helpline you guys are running? So he was a bit upset on us. Uh, but I found that, uh, you know, there are people who doesn't like it that why, you know, the helpline is giving voice to women, uh, especially the people who are perpetrators. <laughs> uh, but I think we it's just a very small number, you know, who are not happy with the work. But I'll, I'll, even at the law enforcement, although they don't like me because I am a very I'm, I'm, I'm a huge critique of their policies, but still they like the work of the helpline. Uh, so we got a huge support from the law enforcement and also from the people. I have two questions. The first one is about the law and the legal provisions because we have this same problem in Kenya where a lot of women suffer um, online harassment. Mm -hmm. But when we made a law that was not specific to women, it was misused by the elite yeah. to harass bloggers and yeah. have them prosecuted. So my question would be what... Um, do you think is a good compromise for a law so that it protects uh, victims and <coughs> is not misused by, you know, people who are not, who do not need protection of the law? And then the second question I have is uh, about the justice system. We have a lot of cases again in East Africa where a lot of these uh, harassment cases they are taken to the police, and then at some point. And um, a negotiation is made with the family from outside the, the system. And, you know, I mean, serious cases where, you know, even um, it could have gone from online to offline and maybe even rape, you know, goats are paid and money is exchanged and the families um, uh, decide not to pursue the matter. So I don't know whether you have... Um, that kind of uh, going back to some traditional systems yeah. and how this is dealt with. Yeah. So uh, as I said, that the law is very problematic. I don't support that law, uh, but and the provisions that I said that can give legal remedy to the woman or the vulnerable communities uh, against the online harassment that they face can also be misused against the progressives, liberals, or bloggers, and that has been happening across the uh, across the world. Uh, I have seen the tr same trend in Bangladesh and in other countries as well. Um, I'm, we are still hoping that uh, the jurisprudence that will develop in the courts maybe, you know, define some processes and some limitations to that. Uh, however, I'm really not that hopeful because, I mean, we have the judiciary who has been saying that Facebook should be banned because it's evil. 
and they banned YouTube for three years in Pakistan. So, you know, uh, when you have such kind of judicial system, then, you know, my, really, my hopes are really not high and the law is really problematic. One of the uh, solutions that we provided to the, like we actually gave this recommendation to the government that the existing legislation can be used and maybe small little amendments in, maybe, for instance, there is this provision already which says a lot about uh, if anyone will hurt a modesty of woman or a natural person, he or she will be punished punished by this and this, you know. So it's, it's already there in our Pakistan Penal Code and we said you can amend that provision and integrate, you know, the online part uh, but you know which clearly shows the intention of the government that they really wanted to bring such a bad legislation because they wanted control over internet in the name of protecting women so they didn't agree to the suggestions that we gave um, and made this new legislation so yes the problem is there and we are waiting how the how the courts will you know uh, develop the jurisprudence um, and the second question is that yes there are traditional ways so um, I spoke to someone at the Federal Investigation Agency who actually said that 90% of cases that we receive on online harassment are being settled outside the court. That's where the family, from, the victim family don't want to go into the court. They don't want it. The, 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 the judicial system is so broken. It, the justice system is so broken in Pakistan that it, it takes years and years to deal with one case and need lots of resources. So they would rather find it easy to settle the, you know, settle the case outside the court. And that's what is happening. So using a lot of traditional methods, which are also, by the way, encouraged by the law enforcement as well, because it also lessens their burden, you know, fighting the case in the court and represent the victim. I, I know groups in Brazil that also try to set up helplines to be trolled. Like the men that were practicing harassment got together and made several calls, like reporting fake abuses and like in a strategic way to dismantle the, the service. So it didn't work in Brazil. Didn't you suffer any kind of like? Attack or trolling stuff? No, I mean, you know, this is very, this is interesting that we haven't even received a one single prank call. Yeah, and this is a very good sign. Um, there are other, other uh, helplines in Pakistan. We have spoken to them before starting our helpline. They said that be ready for, you know, fake calls and where people will really bug you. And, and we thought that we will be getting a lot of, you know, these kind of calls, but we didn't get a single call, which is surprising and also a good sign. <laughs> Well, thank you for this presentation and also thank you for all the work that you've done because I think that it was the Digital Rights Foundation's work that was most inspiring to the Mexican collective working on uh, basically response to harassment and thinking like the different pathways that we could take to provide services in Mexico. And so one of the things that we, like every single group in the world doing this kind of work, really struggled with or continue to struggle with is the inconsistency in dealing with online service providers. And so without saying names or saying what company, who said what, it just seems to like come down to like who your contact is and whether they woke up in a good mood or they didn't that day. And, and that's it, there's not much that can be done. But I wanted to ask like, how did those conversations take shape for you all? How, what, 
how did you plan things out? What do you feel you succeeded in? What do you think you just tried but didn't succeed in? Yeah, I think it's uh, the the hard part is actually dealing with these social media companies and make them understand that you know their uh, their community guidelines or the way they are responding to different complaints are really problematic and not working for different contexts. Uh, and I think our helpline not only identified you know gaps in the uh, in the functioning of law enforcement in Pakistan, but also you know how these social media companies are responding to the victims. And in one of the slides. Uh, it, it says that we received um, like the, uh, a large number of complaints uh, came from the Facebook. Uh, so that's where you know we reached out to the Facebook. We actually shared our report with them, and they said. Uh, we really want to work with you guys and see how we can. But you know, it's been happening for a while in in all the internet freedom festivals and digital rights conferences. These companies are there. Every single time we talk about the same issue, every every single time they respond similarly that we are looking into it. And very soon we'll come with we'll, you know we'll we'll come up with the new uh, stuff uh, at the at the social media company. But but I. I feel it will take really a long time, honestly. I'm not sure we, if we will succeed, but at least, you know, small little successes. For instance, the translation of uh, community guidelines in Urdu, uh, uh, in, uh, in Urdu, Sindhi, Balochi, Punjabi. And that's huge for us because in one of the cases, we found that because, the, because Facebook didn't understand the, the violence happening in Pashto language, they didn't take down the page. And when we we told them that, you know, you really need to see that, you know, this is a violence and this is happening in a local context, in a local language. And that's where they found that, you know, yeah, it is violence and they translated it. And that's where they decided to, you know, translate the community guidelines in, in Urdu and also build their capacity in understanding at least the languages that are speaking in Pakistan. And Pakistani context is, is a bit unique and different. As I said, religion plays out a, ro a huge role and the social norms and uh, and and the kind of you know laws that we have like blasphemy so you know it's 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 really um, it's a difficult task but still you know like we are working with them and see what we can come up with just follow up on that <clears throat> it sounds as if you're saying that translation has to happen in both directions in other words that the social media company must understand content in regional languages in a country yeah. like Pashto, and then also that the community guidelines need to be translated into various languages so that people who are using platforms can understand those rules. Yes, is that, is yes, that right? yes, that's what I meant. Yeah. Yeah. And, then, and then a follow-up on, on, on uh, what you said about the particularities of Pakistan, which of course are, are numerous and every country has its particular cultural context. Um, you mentioned blasphemy, and there's been a, a, a terrible recent case of a, of a killing related to content online and related to blasphemy, in which um, someone, someone posted content that would be completely innocuous in many other, in many other cultures, like the, the identification of oneself as a humanist. Is that, yeah. is that right? And can you, can you describe that case a little bit for what it for the way in which it might shed light on these questions. Yeah, so um, so recently, just a month ago, uh, a university student named Mashal Khan, uh, and Mashal means torch, 
uh, he was killed uh, in the name of online blasphemy by his fellow students and more in most of the and he was lynched till death uh, what happened was I actually had a slide about him and I just took it down it was a bit still very hard for me to talk about this issue but um, but yeah, he had a Facebook page. Uh, the Facebook page name was Voice of the Voiceless. Uh, the only he was only talking about human rights and women's rights and animal rights, and he identified himself as a humanist. And some of the people, and also a uh, couple of months back, he posted on Twitter saying, "Hey, please beware! Uh, somebody has made my fake profile and spreading false things about me." Uh, and pretending that I'm saying these things. So just, he warned his friends about that. So that was a profile on Facebook? That was a profile on Facebook. Uh, and then we just found that this guy was lynched and that's where all the all these investi investigations took place. Uh, and um, I'm sorry, I'm just trying to re-articulate it in this. Uh, but... But I think one of the major role that uh, that the fake profiles are playing out is it's it's very it's massive and very dangerous in the context of Pakistan, where people are making fake profiles, spreading blasphemous content, and because because of lack of understanding that this is a fake profile or a real profile, people just rile up and you know and the and the culture of mob lynching i won't call people call it mob justice in pakistan i don't call it justice because it doesn't serve any justice it's lynching and they should call it lynching and these group of students just you know on the basis of those fake profiles to settle personal score misusing blasphemy law is so easy uh, there is no forensic um, uh, lab uh, there is one lab in pakistan doesn't work really well uh, lack of understanding of how online platforms work all of these things sort of, you know, uh, made it possible and led to his murder. And uh, yeah, and uh, and the same students who were lynching him make making videos. So that's how we all all of us got to know that this this student was killed by his fellow students. I saw one. So there are like multiple videos still online, um, very uh, went viral. Um, I saw one videos, video, I wanted to see, it was very hard, but I wanted to see that how it happened. This guy was kicking him and then come back and making video. Then he stopped his video, went and kicked him. And he was shot by one of the students in his head. And they were like kicking his body and punching him and throwing stones. And, um, and that made me realize that online world is so it's it's very brutal um, and these same same students actually posted the video online it 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 went viral on facebook it went viral online and and through those videos pe law enforcement basically identified people uh, and they are some some of them are arrested uh, but blasphemy online is is now playing a huge role uh, in terms of uh, prosecuting people under the same legislation while misusing that law. And online platforms, I think, has provided this space to misuse this law. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to bl blame because online or social media is a tool and it's us who use it, you know, 
positively or negatively but uh, but the it's it's actually the lack of understanding of the legis uh, the law enforcement and the law which is problematic um, yeah i mean uh, this this what happened just recently uh, and it started uh, it actually gets started it helps help helped us starting a debate around the legislation not only the legislation but also awareness about you know uh, about the online safety and security just like really basic things about strong passwords keeping uh, keeping an eye on fake profiles and this this awareness is not there among especially in pakistani internet users they are on facebook they are on different social media companies but they 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 have very little understanding of how this works and how they can you know stay safe online what about the platforms would, would facebook understand that a profile uh, uh, is is fake and also dangerous if it posts what would be considered blasphemous content in Pakistan I think they do understand because they have a uh, they have a team in India who actually understand the context of Pakistan I also uh, you know always reach out to them and tell this is happening you know this is what the law says this is what the people are doing so you just be vigilant just to let them know that they don't give any excuse that oh we don't know we don't know the context and we have this global standard i'm not asking them to give a, a, a an exclusive solution to pakistan but i think there are several contexts which are similar a, a blogger was just kill, killed in maldive because what he was posting online so these this these are the trends that are happening especially in the muslim countries so i think you know social media companies are aware maybe they just pretend that they are not uh and i and I, what i do is that i always inform these companies that this is what is happening this is the context and you know please be vigilant and be warned one of your hopes for the new data privacy legislation and that it might increase the confidence of people reporting um, these types of incidents to police because they could be more confident that their uh, information would be treated securely what are your other hopes for what that data privacy legislation might do i think it's not it's just one small uh, example that i said that uh, it will help you know the cyber uh, cyber crime wing but i mean we we have a um, world's largest biometric database and we don't have any data protection uh, you know policy uh, regarding that database and it's just one example so so man we have this huge project around smart cities where uh, just in lahore where i am based it, they are installing 8000 uh, cctv cameras but we don't really know how this will work how they will process the data who will have access to it so i think it will help not only you know bringing a federal law but also you know the uh, provincial laws and then these provincial laws will help you know the institutions to you know have their own data uh, protection policies uh, which are really not there uh, so uh, it, at least that's what i'm hoping for but i think the conversation has started at the federal level and at the provincial level as well so in pakistan under the constitution we uh, not only need a law at the federal level but also you know provinces can make their own legislations 
and I'm not only pushing at the federal level but also pushing the Punjab government and sometimes you know these provinces sort of do stuff in the competition of you know other local governments and that's what you know we are sort of hoping that if Punjab will only you know uh, um, enact a legislation around data protection it will set a good precedent for the rest of the provinces and might encourage you know the government uh, the federal government to do to do the same but federal government is already you know interested in you know having the in, in enacting the legislation so so it this will help at different levels yeah Five hundred calls in the first year that you had this help line up. Four months. Four months. Excuse me. Four months. Okay. Um, so then, just wondering, like, what is the context of like how many people you're helping, given how much harassment you think actually takes place um, to Pakistani citizens on like so, I guess like maybe not like on the whole internet. Let's just say Facebook, for example. Uh, so I think that's where our data also lacks. Sometimes, you know, uh, if, if someone is calling and asking us to uh, uh, to get the information around cybercrime wing or the processor or the legal remedy or how the law works. So we tell them, you know, the entire information and that's what only they want. So we really don't know that this is basically the solution of, to, uh, of their problem or, you know, they just wanted that information. Uh, sometimes, you know, uh, if someone's profile is hacked or something, we tell them the reporting mechanism. If we get another call, that means that it is not solved. Sometimes, you know, when it is solved, people don't tell us that, you know, my problem is resolved. So that's where we are lacking the data that how many, you know, uh, how many, uh, you know, reports or how many complaints we have resolved so far. Yeah. Hi. Uh, so yeah, I was just in India and I was talking a lot with people about biometric, the state of all the new biometrics and yeah. figuring out if there is any silver lining or upside. I mean, in a sense, identity theft should go down or impersonation or, and some things like getting SIM cards are easier, it's faster because the authentication is faster. And I'm wondering if there's any, um, when it works, if there's any silver lining around like online authentication or impersonation or is there any talk mm. about how like biometrics might help stop these attacks or if we shouldn't even go there? I don't think we should even go there. <laughs> That's really, I mean, we are, I'm, I'm really worried about the, the kind of biometrics that are happening in Pakistan. I was on a TV show a few, few weeks back and there was this guy who said, it's so easy to deal with cyber crimes and online harassment and fake profiles. So if you sort of connect people's profile with their biometric identity, uh, this will help solving the problem. And then, you know, nobody will make a fake profile. I was like, uh, okay, no, <laughs> we don't need that. Uh, I, I I find it very problematic, to be very honest. I don't know how this will work, but even the, just the idea uh, and, yeah. The flip side is we, we have to ensure we're doing advocacy to tech companies that they don't fall for this. Yeah. This like, mm -hmm. oh, that's a, that's a great way to authenticate people. Is, you know, but, I mean, you know, we use phone numbers now as like an ID. 
Right? Yeah, but you know that's also very problematic in terms of people who are having their like anonymous profiles with and pseudo names. For instance, I uh, mentioned a case of Kandil Baloch, and uh, you missed that part. But uh, she was using her pseudo name, and that's how she was reclaiming her, you know, online space. Uh, the time, the moment her identity was revealed, she was killed by her brother. So I think online uh, anonymity actually provides a lot of space for people to reclaim online spaces and if you know it'll it'll sort of con it'll be connected with the biometric profiles or in also you know the real nom name policy of Facebook is really you know I mean they have it and it's worrying because lots of people for instance LGBT community in different parts of the world they just they cannot be there online with their real name and if somebody's profile is reported and and, you know, take it down by the social media company, they cannot take it back because they have to provide their real identity to, to get their profile back. So, Allery and then, yeah. I think, uh, so the, um, the impersonation challenge and Facebook, and I mean, I'm just continuing this topic. What should we tell Facebook to do about that? about the issue of impersonation because I mean right it's like the real name policy I mean they do you know asking for ID they do so that's kind of that's already there yeah, yeah. but um, thinking about Michelle how might he or somebody on his behalf have what, what would I mean I, I've sort of been in this situation with the company and I don't know what I've never had like a interaction where I felt like oh they really helped figure that one out when it came to a, an, a, an account that seemed to be intending to impersonate someone. I'm not sure. I mean, I think that's I think that's that's why we all are here to figure this out. To be very honest, it's a, and that's why I said that you know the helpline is a very very local solution. Might not work for others, but that's how it's working for us. Maybe not fully, but at least you know to some extent we are trying to address the issue. But also you know like dealing with companies is such a complicated stuff. Honestly, the whole argument around online harassment and all of these things i mean we need to we also need to understand why these companies are there you know they what, what is their main job they it's it's business right and making money out of our data so one last question oh okay um i was just curious if you've um ever had a discussion about someone who works at facebook or twitter or something about a system that basically just federates tasks like this because actually two hours ago Mark Zuckerberg he said that he's devoting 3,000 people more in up communication uh, tasks so that they can filter and and I think that's great so he's taking the torch on this one but still 3,000 for billions of people just doesn't work so I was thinking something kind of a Wikipedia style federated bunch of editors who do the work globally that is not efficient, but it's a lot more efficient than just relying on a company that has to pay 3,000 people to do it and they may or may not like it, may may not be equipped to do it if they hire them just in one country. So I was just curious if you thought about this kind of global, I mean, it's it's not easy to do, but just if, if you know if the idea is around, if someone is discussing it or... Um, I, I, I don't know, I haven't discussed this kind of stuff with Facebook. Uh, I'm also kind of slightly, uh, 
reluctant in you know talking so much with the companies um uh yeah but uh, but i i have heard that they have this whole whole system in somewhere in philippines where you know people are actually working for facebook to identify fake news something around uh, to that do all, to, to, to review uh, reports that come from users yeah. which are of course enormous in number yeah. and to make a decision whether to take content down or yeah. not facebook already employs yeah like the other platforms enormous numbers of people who do that yeah but it's also worrying that you know the the, the people who are working in philippines i mean do they really understand the context coming from across the world so it's I, honestly i think it's a huge challenge for the companies as well it's it's not just you know something that they will just provide the solution they are dealing with these uh, issues and there are people in these companies who really want to address but also i think the larger political will is needed at the higher level <laughs> have some kind of federated system yeah. that does it i just i don't know what that system will look like i'm just curious if someone is talking about it well it has been a tremendous conversation we have not solved all of the problems <laughs> as yet but you've heard about some uh some very uh, courageous and innovative efforts uh, to make some progress and I'm very grateful that NIGAT has come and hope that these conversations and efforts will only multiply and continue and uh, be more and more effective. So thank you so much for coming. There's probably more lunch. Okay.